0: What I am really interested in is the science of human emotion. And in particular, what's captivated my field and my interest the most is trying to understand positive emotions. So not only the ways in which perhaps we think they're beneficial for us or confer some sort of adaptive value, but actually the ways in which they may signal dysfunction and may not actually in all circumstances um, and at all intensities be good for us. And so I thought I'd first start briefly with sort of a a tale of positive emotion. Um, It's a really interesting state because in many ways, um, you know, it's one of the most powerful things that evolution has built for us. You know, if we look at early writings in Charles Darwin, you know, he prominently features these feelings of, you know, love, admiration, laughter. And so early on, we see observations of them and have some sense that they're really critical for our survival. But when you look at sort of the subsequent scientific study of emotion, it lagged far behind. Indeed, most of the research in human emotion really began with studying negative emotions, trying to build taxonomies, understand cognitive appraisals, physiological signatures of things like anger and fear and disgust. And for good reason, we wanted to understand human suffering and hopefully try to ameliorate it. Um, And when we looked at the first sort of scientific study of positive emotion, what we really saw is a rather simplistic treatment of it. We would see people talking about positive emotions as if they were some you know single unidimensional construct that we would call happiness, um, whatever that was supposed to mean, even looking at you know work on the you know what are thought to be some of the most you know basic universal emotions cross culturally to man in some of paul Ekman 's early observations. Five out of six of them were negative, and again, we really had just one that was truly positive. This idea of joy or happiness, um, but everyone here knows that there's more than just one way to feel good, right? And so it seems to be that um, science, though, hadn't yet got there just yet. Um, furthermore, when we thought about you know the fact that emotions are functional, we have them for some reason; they help us serve some sort of you know adaptive survival purpose. Positive emotions, again, were relatively ne- neglected. When we thought of what their function was, a lot of the early treatment suggested, well, really they're there perhaps just to undo the sort of deleterious effects of negative emotions, right? We saw work, you know, by Barbara Fredrickson, Robert Levinson, and others that showed really profoundly that when you got sort of, you know, sympathetically charged by some kind of negative emotion, that positive emotions could kick in to kind of help you recover or come down to some resting baseline. And although that may be some important finding related to a consequence of positive emotion, it's not—it's you know—it's not the sole function in its own right. Positive emotions are not simply healers, um, and they're not simply there to counteract the effects of negative emotions. They have their functions of their own and in their own right. And I think only recently have we really seen these empirical tides begin to shift and to really turn our attention towards trying to understand what exactly positive emotions are, um, sort of what their functions are for us. And I think, you know, in many ways, what good are they for us? And I think this is an exciting time in the field. Um, But I also think, you know, as it's grown and gained momentum, a lot of the research has focus, perhaps understandably, on trying to understand what benefits positive emotions confer for us, right? We know from this research there's been, you know, a robust domain of findings that have really said, not surprisingly, positive emotions seem to have some sort of benefits for us, right? They help us build vital social bonds. There's even some work in health psychology disciplines suggesting they may enhance physical immunity to stressors, right? And some work suggesting they play some role in sort of expansive creative thinking. Um, when I've sort of entered this field, I looked at this and I said, well, you know, let's, let's wait a second here. Is this really all there is to the story? And I think here's where... I've gotten most interested in this field of positive emotion. And I think where a lot of the most perhaps interesting insights about positive emotion have really kind of come into being in the past couple years. So when I thought about sort of where is this field of emotion um, and positive emotion in particular in the past couple years, this is really, I think, where my attention turned. And I think, you know, it's suggesting that, you know, How we traditionally think about positive emotion and the role it plays in our well-being is not at all as simple as we thought. And it's far more nuanced and far more complex. And especially if you think about the relationship of positive emotion to our general sense of well-being and how we survive and flourish, it's not some simple linear relationship. And I think some of the critical factors that it really depends on in understanding the role that positive emotion plays in human well-being varies as a function of the, I would say, balance of positive emotions, and I'll say a little bit more what I mean by that, um, the context in which they unfold, and I would say sort of the specific aims or goals by which we go about trying to experience this thing we call positive emotion in the first place. And I think that's what I'd like to talk with you about today, is sort of thinking about this really nuanced, almost delicate interplay between this thing we call positive emotion, this thing that we sort of have some intuitive sense, must it be good for us, right? And to actually say, no, it's not quite that simple. Um, It's a far more rich and deep relationship that I think not only tells us something about emotion, but I think just says a little bit about the role that psychological states, perhaps more generally, um, play in better understanding our human nature. Um, So what I wanted to start out with in sort of playing out these three themes for me was a quote that I remember first seeing um, by Aristotle, who I often go back to and think had many of the most sort of, you know, prescient, fascinating observations about human emotion. And as psychologists, we're just trying to catch up now and sort of build some empirical data um, to really flesh out his observations. So he has this wonderful quote, and I'll I'll read it to you. Um, You know, he said, Getting angry or sad is easy, and anyone can do it. But doing it at the right amount, at the right time, and in the right way is not easy, nor can anyone do it. And I mean, here he picked up some of these key themes right away. He talked about the amount or intensity of an emotion experience. He talked about, you know, sort of the timing or the particular sensitive context in which this emotion sort of reveals itself. And he also talked about the way. Um, and I think of the way in terms of sort of the, what are the ways that we try to achieve these states in the first place so i want to start out with this first theme which is really about the amount of you know emotions we experience and when you think about positive emotion probably most of you see things you know not only in the scientific form, but also in sort of pop culture that suggests that what we ought to be doing is really striving to sort of maximize these positive states, right? Um, Or just the general term happiness, that what we should be going out and doing is finding ways to increase the frequency, intensity, and amount of positive emotions that we experience. And I think what I would say is that that may be going about it in all the wrong way. And that what actually may be most important is to think about positive emotion as a very delicate balance and an equilibrium that we want to constantly keep check on. And so what I'm talking about here in a way is like the magnitude or intensity of any emotion state we experience, and I think this applies to positive emotion as well. Um, So here I think really what we're going back to is this principle of moderation and the idea that positive emotions are no exception to that. And so when you look at some of the recent data that's come out in the past few years about positive emotion, it's really suggested that intensely high or great magnitudes or degrees of positive emotion um, don't necessarily confer you know, um, these sort of direct benefits, you know, in terms of increasing our well-being or our psychological health. Um, and some of these findings at first, when I saw them, I found them really counterintuitive. Um, so, for example, we all think that, you know, positive emotion is something that should enhance our ability to creatively think about solving problems, that it just sort of open up our re- repertoire to sort of pick from different possible ideas or strategies, um, we find, though, that when people actually sort of go beyond a critical threshold, sort of hit a peak and pass that, that they actually have a harder time solving problems effectively, that they become more rigid or inflexible in their sort of behavioral repertoires, that it seems to be the case that too much positive emotion, um, thinking especially about these high arousal states of excitement and joy, actually leads us to become less creative. Um And then the piece that I love the most is thinking about sort of what are the sort of action tendencies associated with some of our most common positive emotions. And if we think of some of them, especially like excitement or enthusiasm, they motivate us importantly to seek out rewards in the environment, to try to obtain them. And once we obtain them, to go about savoring them. And so in many ways, I think it sort of narrows our focus on rewards and how can we find them, attain them and keep them for as long as possible. Um, and what we find is that individuals um, who experience, again, these sort, this sort of heightened magnitude of positive emotion—this is measured in a lot of different ways, using self-report scales, and also with children, um, parent and teacher-rated observations um, of the extent of sort of positive emotion that they're expressing—is we're seeing that it, when it's experienced too intensely and sort of out of balance, it causes you to neglect important threats and dangers and pieces of information in the environment around you. And so as a result, it we see associations with greater risk taking. So, um, you know, sort of engaging in um, reckless driving, you know, substance abuse, unsafe sexual practices. Um, and some people would argue this may help explain this one finding, um, looking at children who are rated um, in terms of their um, dispositional cheerfulness. Um, and followed them longitudinally over the lifespan, and what you find is that children who were rated as more highly cheerful actually had um, greater uh, mortality risk later in life. Um, there could be many reasons to account for this, but I think <laughs> I think one one possibility might be um, at least you know tentatively that there's something about heightened positive emotion beyond a critical threshold. Um, that we need to be really careful of and really think about keeping it in balance and in my lab we try to study this in the clinical context of individuals suffering from emotional disorders Um, and one entry point that we've begun to look at it um, are among individuals with mania that at least show some characteristic signs of heightened positive emotion and sort of this appetitive system that's kind of go 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 towards rewards and finding not surprisingly that these are individuals who engage in all kinds of reckless behaviors they wipe out their bank accounts they destroy some um, most important social bonds in their lives with their partners through just, you know, lots of sort of sexual promiscuity. And they will report when you talk to them, and we, you know, interview a lot of these people clinically, that they just felt so good that nothing else, you know, sort of could enter their mind. That it was sort of a one mind that was really all about feeling good and, and, you know, finding ways to keep that going. And so I think this first theme, and it's a really new theme, I think really needed a lot more empirical attention on it. But at least what it's beginning to suggest is something about um, perhaps human nature that, you know, suggests that maybe we need to put aside these conventional notions of trying to maximize positive emotions and that positive emotion may be in line with many psychological states. Um, That are subject to this principle of moderation that we really want to be experiencing things in balance not too little or not too much and in many ways It's also consistent, you know just with Biological theory is sort of postulating optimal functioning and sort of moving towards a sense of you know homeostasis or equilibrium And so I think um, this is important because it suggests that a realm of psychology that's getting a lot of pop uh, pop culture attention um, Really needs to sort of be cautious and and think a bit about you know, in these interventions that are being discussed, how can we keep it in line with a sense of moderation? Um, so that's one thing that's been getting attention in the past years that I think is interesting. The one thing that m- c- comes next that I find even more fascinating is the idea of context, right? So I've been talking about positive emotions very generally, and I haven't been talking about sort of when do they occur? What is the timing? And if we think about sort of a functional approach, to emotions, Um, the idea is that they have functions, but the functions are really tied to a specific context. So, emotions are geared to help us, you know, uh, find opportunities, solve challenges, respond to immediate threats. Um, and, And inherent in that definition is that they arise in this particular context in which those goals are activated. And so, when we think about the function, thinking about positive emotion now, we greatly need to consider the context in which it occurs. Um, We can all probably readily imagine times when we're hanging out with friends. And it's a wonderful, appropriate context to, you know, experience amusement, experience joy. Um, But there's many contexts in which that would absolutely not be productive and may, you know, lead to rupturing, you know, professional relationships, if you're laughing inappropriately. Or, you know, if you're in a dangerous, life-threatening situation, you don't want to sort of be standing back content at the world around you, right? Um, and so I think, for me, this is the, con- the, the piece of positive emotion that I've been most interested in and I think has some of the um, most powerful impl- implications, at least for affective scientists, in terms of how we think about emotion, emotion regulation, um, and understanding. And so I, I think of this, you know, I start with negative emotions because those are the ones that have received... Still, to the state the most attention um, and we can think of anger for example it mobilizes us to sort of um, you know overcome obstacles or fear that alerts us to threat and danger in the environment these are obvious functions I don't think many of us would disagree with but when we think about the role of distinct kinds of positive emotions what role do they serve well we know things um, in general if we th- talk at a general valence level of positive emotions they're thought to sort of you know uh, in many ways, help us pursue personal goals and facilitate cooperative behavior. And you can take a more nuanced perspective and look at the discrete types or distinct flavors of positive emotion, and there you see wonderful taxonomies that are now being developed saying that you know certain emotions like gratitude have very different functions from pride, very different functions from feelings of contentment and awe or inspiration. So we all we see that not only does the sort of family of positive emotion have some sort of broad-based function but that each individual variety or flavor of positive emotions serves a really important goal in our lives Um, and so the important point I'm trying to make here is that positive emotions are really um, you know suited to perform a function and so um, in many ways um, when you experience positive emotions in a context that doesn't match that function then here's where we're finding that you know difficulties arise and that we shouldn't be trying to promote positive emotions at all times and in all situations and for all people, for that matter. Um, and there's been a couple interesting findings that have come out in the last couple years that I think really hit this home. Um, one of them is by a psychologist, Maya Tamir. And she did a study looking at what kinds of affective states promote um, successful outcomes on competitive tasks. And so she did a task um, that involved a competitive uh, computer game with another opponent. And participants were experimentally um, induced into either a positive mood state, um, which was a sort of high arousal state that many people would say is something like excitement or joy, um, compared to individuals in an angry mood state, right? Which is also this sort of appetitive high arousal state. And then there was a neutral comparison condition. And then after that, people played this competitive computer task. And she found that those who performed the best on this task were not the people that were induced into the sort of highly positive, arousing uh, mood state, but those who were angry, she would say. Um, And this has a lot of implications in thinking about, you know, when you're trying to overcome obstacles and in some competitive situation, there may be something about anger that helps motivate the kinds of behaviors that could lead to successful outcomes. Now, that doesn't mean that we should be angry all the time when we're competing, but it just suggests that, you know, depending on what your goal is in life, um, and if your goal is to win in some competitive situation, that at least we know that um, highly arousing positive states may not be the affective state or path that's going to get you there the best. Um, We've also looked at the context of experiencing positive emotions and everyday social interactions with romantic partners Um, and so what we did is we brought romantic couples into the lab who had been in long-term relationships Um, so these are perhaps our most you know highly valued social relationships in our entire life um, and highly ecologically valid in the context of trying to understand emotional dynamics between two people and what we asked people to do was to think of a time in their life where they experienced great suffering or personal loss and to share that with their partner. And then we had the partner report the kinds of emotions that they experienced um, after hearing their partner tell this, you know, time of suffering or loss. Now, many of you might imagine that, you know, if you could list a a sort of array of emotions that would be appropriate in that circumstance, both to accurately sort of interpret the significance of what your partner is saying and, you know, uh, be connected to them empathically, might range from things like sadness, um, frustration, to even compassion, which is an interesting emotion that has elements of both positive and negative feelings. Um, what we found, though, is in this particular sample, and this had both healthy community adults and individuals on a spectrum um, of, of clinical, uh, you know, s- the clinical sort of symptoms of mania, is that the, the, the higher people were on this spectrum of having symptoms of mania, the more they reported feeling positive during this interaction. And by positive, these were feelings of joy, um, amusement, um, and even contentment. So what we were finding is that not only are sort of signatures of emotional dysfunction um, associated with experiencing positive emotions in an appropriate context, but that this is not surprisingly predictive of decreased relationship satisfaction. Um, So it just tells us something about The importance of context and experiencing positive emotions. And this may seem really obvious and in some ways really trivial, but I think every time I hear or see some book that tells you how to sort of maximize happiness and to think of three great things every day and to sort of, you know, constantly try to use this, you know, facial feedback, you know, monitoring to sort of put a smile on your face, what I don't see in it is sort of under what context is that appropriate, right? Um, And so I always worry that. You know, what we need to be stressing more of is that emotions um, really only serve their function best in particular contexts in which they were suited for. So I think for me this says something important about positive emotion but also sort of our emotional states as human beings in general um, insofar as it suggests that any kind of emotional state is only adapted for for us insofar as it has a particular fit with the um, environmental demands or needs in that situation. Um, and that in many ways, um, there are no sort of absolute value judgments we can place on emotions to call them adaptive or maladaptive, good or bad. Um, and this goes for emotion regulation as well as a field where we no longer can call certain kinds of strategies like reappraisal adaptive or behavioral suppression where we don't show expressivity in our face maladaptive, um, that this just isn't the way that these emotional states work, um nothing is inherently adaptive or maladaptive. So that's a second theme that I think has been getting a lot of attention is sort of what people will call context or the context sensitivity of our emotional states, behaviors, and associated regulation strategies. Um, And I think the third theme, and this is the one that I find um, perhaps the most important when we think about setting goals for ourselves um, in our everyday lives is thinking about how do we set goals that will make us feel more positive right um and you know there's a lot of strategies out there about how to maximize feelings of positivity um you know there's ideas that there's certain ratios we should try to obtain or you know certain kinds of frequencies in which we should experience positive emotions and i think for me when i think about this um to one, it suggests, I mean, we care a lot about, as human beings, about experiencing pleasant feelings, um, maximizing them and trying to make them last, you know, as long as possible. And um, especially in the U.S., this seems sort of ingrained in the way we think about, you know, what our rights are. You know, we have this notion of, you know, life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness, that this is sort of a culturally embedded value. And positive emotions are at the forefront. They're hypercognized. We have, you know, a lot of, a lot of T- um, words for them and we, we put a lot of emphasis on them. Um, but I think the bottom line in all of this, and I'll tell you some what I think are really interesting studies um, by Iris Mouse at UC Berkeley is that we spend a lot of time trying to find ways to make ourselves feel positive. People call this feeling happy often colloquially and I think recent science suggests that we're going about it all in the wrong way. Um, and in fact, we um, Research is finding that the more people, one, spend time and effort trying to increase how positive they feel, and two, the more they sort of set as the end goal point feeling more positive, that they actually somewhat paradoxically set themselves up to feel less of that very state. Um, So there's been work looking at um, individuals in laboratory studies um, where people are told, um, for example, try to make yourself feel as happy as possible, you know, while listening to a piece of music. And those people that are told to do that, not surprisingly, report feeling less positive, right? Um, And if you look at people who report these kind of tendencies on a daily life, so endorsing items such as, you know, I spend a lot of time trying to feel happy or I go out of my way to sort of select activities that I think are going to bring me pleasure, that I think are going to make me feel good. If you bring these people into the laboratory and put them in contexts that are ostensibly positive, like you're watching a positive film or reading a positive sort of vignette, that it's in those circumstances that they feel or self-report less positive affect, that you see it even more pronounced um, than compared to a negative film or some neutral film. And the idea that, um, researchers have tried to explain these sort of paradoxical findings is kind of thinking, kind of going back to sort of just basic theories on human goal pursuit. Um, You know that the goals that people value determine what standards they're going to set for achieving those goals. Um, And in many ways um, you can think of, for example, someone who highly values academic achievement, right? They place a lot of value on that goal. It's likely they're going to subsequently set a very high standard for achieving that goal. So in many ways, the more we seem to value experiencing positive emotion, whether it is excitement or pride or love um, or contentment, the more we sort of set that as our emotional value system, inadvertently probably the higher we're going to set a threshold for achieving it um, and subsequently set up ourselves for disappointment. And um, we've seen research sort of translating this to the clinical science realm recently, finding that, Um, people who highly value the experience of positive emotion and who put behavioral energy towards obtaining it, they're at greater risk for depression. Um, And they subsequently report at at baseline cross-sectionally too a greater incidence of uh, a clinical diagnosis of major depressive disorder. And so we really see that this is telling us something profound about just the kinds of goals we set for ourselves. And for me, I think this is an important thing um, to translate to human nature because it suggests that you know the amount of our positive emotion is really affected amount by the effort we put into it and it's almost this ironic effect. I mean we know that the more we try not to think about white bears we, we think about white bears and in many cases the more we try not to be unhappy, the more unhappy we seem to be. So it suggests in many ways that um, you know there is this sort of paradoxical backfiring and in many ways that, if we want to have, you know, affective or psychological goals for ourselves, that we ought not to make that the end focal point in itself, but perhaps to be focusing on other things from which those emotions might emerge. So, I mean, just in closing, thinking about um, what positive emotion can tell us, not just about positive emotion, um, but more general about human nature, I think, is that the relationship, I think, between our feelings, and perhaps this goes for our thoughts and behaviors as well, as way more complicated than we ever thought way more complicated and I think we have a lot more work ahead of ourselves and that it really depends on things like intensity of a given psychological state the context in which it occurs and sort of just the way we approach trying to achieve it in the first place Um, so in other words I think balance um, intensity um, context and timing are important and uh, as psychologists um, I mean, always I sort of go back and think, you know, how much we can learn from philosophy as we sort of try to move forward and understand human nature too. Um, so that's that's I think what has happened in the past couple of years, and I hope that we kind of continue to move forward and realizing just how much more complicated human emotions are than we I think ever thought possible. Thank you. Thanks.
1: It felt as if, in a way, there was a, yeah. there's like a, a struggle in the remarks that you made between two visions of what a theory of emotion should deliver on. Yeah. So one vision is that what it should deliver on is tell us whether it's good or bad, right? Mm-hmm. And then another theory is that it should tell us what its function is and what role it plays mm-hmm. in the psychological system. And if you thought of other kinds of psychological systems like vision. It would never occur to you to ask the question, like, the visual system, good or bad? Yeah. Like, do have too much of it? Like obviously the yeah. question would be, what, what, is, what is its functional role, how does it enable yeah. behavior? Right. And I wonder whether, in a
2: way, it's kind of been a poison pill for yeah. research in positive
1: psychology that it's the kind of thing that it seems like one would want to have a lot of, but that sets up a question which is really a red herring. Um, so, in thinking about yeah, what yeah. the function of positive psychology was, the other thing that struck me about your remarks is this asymmetry. Lots of bad emotions, kind of, sort of, seems like just one good emotion. You were saying we mm-hmm. can draw some distinctions, yeah. but just at a broad level, it did feel like there's disgust, there's fear, there's anger, yeah. and then there's just happiness. So, yeah. do you, I guess I was yeah. just curious why. I mean, is there? Yeah. Can you think of a reason at a functional level why we ought to have? many different flavors and varieties of negative emotion, but why, if you were going to design a good psychological system, it would actually be best just to have one kind of generic goodness?
0: The answer is no, I can't. And I try to think, why did this start in the first place? And perhaps, you know, when we think of sort of our early categorization systems of emotion, a lot of it came from facial expressions, right? That they were thought to be these automatic universal signals of emotion. And at least when it comes to different kinds of positive emotions, they're not all readily apparent in the face. We have this sort of Duchenne smile that's supposed to signal some kind of joy. But then there's a lot more that goes on when we think about the way that our body, through nonverbal behaviors, touch vocal intonations that that help differentiate at the behavioral level positive emotions. So I think perhaps one reason why it began is because when we were looking at cultural universal displays of emotion, um, at least at the beginning, there seemed to be one that. yeah, um, but I think I think any sort of functional account of emotion would suggest now that perhaps there may even be a wider variety of positive emotions than negative emotions. you know, it's it's fascinating. I mean, there's these taxonomies that have been developed that show you know, distinct cognitive appraisals that uniquely differentiate. You know, you can look at classes of self versus other oriented positive emotions. And then you can also look at emotions that sort of take us outside of ourselves completely and sort of give us a perspective on the broader world, things like awe and inspiration. And um, they're incredibly important for us. And, you know, there's recent work suggesting they have different vocalizations and that even these positive emotions can be distinctly and reliably communicated through physical touch. And so I think what needs to be done is simply to, um, for for whatever reason, this negative bias we had on emotions, um, because we thought that in many ways they were causes of suffering, that they led us astray, they made us these irrational beings. Um, Now we're sort of catching up and seeing just how important they are for us. And the more we sort of take in a a profiled approach to look at distinct varieties of positive emotion, the more we're going to better understand the different sort of psychological functions they have and bear in our everyday lives. Yeah, but I think you're exactly right and I don't, it's interesting to think about why there was this value system placed on emotion but not, right, on, on vision science per se and I think it gets even more complicated when you talk about value systems and we think of cross-cultural value systems. I mean much of the positive psychology movement is driven by um, sort of westernized U.S. notions of positive emotions and so as a result it's focused on higher also positive states. Um, as opposed to had it emerged, you know, in more collectivistic cultures, it might have focused on more low arousal, positive emotion states. So we seem to care a lot about emotions and have value systems, and I think that has sort of clouded our scientific judgment and sort of opera- operationalization of, of where to begin and what, what these are. Yeah. So I'm, I'm with you. <laughs> yeah. Sorry.
2: I have yeah.
3: one question, which is it touches on the last thing like you were sort of talking about in. Mm-hmm. in language. Two things that might be related. I'm struggling to understand are emotions the end goal state themselves? Or are emotions merely the signal of some goals, goal state? In other words, just take a totally different analogy. Say, my goal is to be rich. But the signal could be, oh, people drive BMWs who are rich. So I could say, I'm going to go get a BMW. It's not going to make me rich. -hmm. So I'm just trying to understand: is the emotion, and I guess I mean this both normatively. Yeah. So that could be one way in which we could be giving bad advice for saying people think positive, you know, be happy, Mm -hmm. think positive. That's not what you're looking for. Those things that generate it. Right, right. But I also am just even trying to understand this positively. That is, is in when we understand the decisions people make, Mm -hmm. how do they think about what they're trying to accomplish? Are they mistaken to be chasing Mm -hmm. this? Do they understand what? And that's, I think, related yeah. to my second question. In yeah. What you talked about, you were sort of taking these reports of emotions, and maybe there's much more literature. So I'd love to just yeah. hear more about, yeah. when I think about my own emotional state, the more, this is, I'm not going
2: to.
3: <laughs> 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 think about my own emotional state, it's almost yeah. like an illusion in my mind that I can report it. It feels like as I yeah. gain maturity, one thing I learn is that actually my emotional state is not as accessible to me as I thought it was. Yeah. And how... How do we think about those things? Do you know what I'm saying? Yeah, I
0: know exactly what you're saying. Um, So to start with the first point, I think, so it's interesting because when we look at some of the most basic accounts of what emotions are in terms of are they the goal themselves or are they simply uh, a pathway to get to the goal, I mean, many ways what we think of emotions doing as sort of eliciting a certain set of action tendencies or behaviors that are going to help get us towards a goal so an emotion is a signal to us, it's a source of information, and that information is going to guide us to sort of decide, do I approach or avoid that particular person? But it's not the emotion itself that's the goal, it's the emotion that gives you information to sort of set you off on behaviors that are going to get you to your goal, right? So I would say many emotion theorists would not would not think of emotion as the goal in and of itself. That being said, if you sort of ask, you know, people's perhaps everyday intuitions about emotions, and you say sort of, you know, ask them about their goals in life, well, it's to be happy. My goal is to be happy. My goal is to feel less sad and less anxious. And even from sort of a a clinical psychology perspective, you know, working with patients who come into therapy, their goals are often very emotionally defined. They want to minimize negative emotion uh, intensity, usually, generally speaking, um, and maximize positive emotion intensity. And I think what we need to do is sort of use this information and sort of leverage it in sort of an educational way to say well emotions are certainly important you know facets of our lives they they give us information and they 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 signal to us something but they're not the goal itself and so i think that's that's the confusion i think that many people have this desire to want to move towards emotion as the goal when it's anything but that it's sort of what are the behaviors that happen after the emotion is elicited and do they take you towards or away from where you want to be going. Can Thank I
4: ask?
0: Yes. Yeah, uh, just quick clarification
4: yeah. on this because yeah. it strikes me that we talk, and I think it's an American thing, to be honest, just focus yeah. on happiness as the goal. Yeah. But even you, when you're talking about your goals, you, you frame it as if, well, uh, if we just stop focusing on being happy, it'll make us more happy. <laughs> and so it's even an end goal for, for in, in your talk, mm-hmm. and it's, it strikes, you know, when I, my parents being the immigrants that they are, uh, mm-hmm. uh, always would tell me, you know, it's weird to say I'm doing it to make myself happy. Right. And many, many times I opt to do things that will make me very unhappy knowing so because I have a goal. And sure, right. like at some right. ultimate level, like I, I want to achieve right. all my goals and presumably that happiness is the signal that I've achieved the goals but I don't ever feel directly motivated by an attempt at happiness.
0: That's a good thing.
4: <laughs> I, I think it is. I think it is. And, and I think that it's weird to make happiness the goal because then let's just pop ecstasy. What about you know? <laughs> All right, let's do it. <laughs> yeah, let's it. Well, I already did.
0: <laughs> no, I think you're right. And I think that's, it's funny because you totally caught me and that's exactly <laughs> it. So just don't try to be happy, right? And then you'll be happy. And then you'll be happy, yeah. right? <laughs> And I think a lot of what people are focusing on now especially in the past you know five or so years is this idea of mindful acceptance of not focusing on maybe any one particular emotion that you ought to feel or ought not to feel but simply being present with whatever emotions you have right and that's where it takes the spotlight away from emotions as a goal but more just focuses on being and experiencing whatever emotions you have and using them as pieces of information right to tell you something important about the environment and about yourself. So that's just, that's one approach and there's many different kinds of approaches out there, but I think they're all important insofar as they're telling us to sort of get away from sort of looking at at emotion as sort of the end goal. To to what
5: it says is is the whole construct of happiness cultural?
1: cultural. I
5: I notice just the word Oh, drove yeah. Dr. Kahneman from the table.
1: Yeah.
5: <laughs> <laughs> and I, I've yeah. never framed my life in terms of happy.
0: No, uh, I mean... And, and I wonder,
5: like, how much yeah. of this is driven by Prozac? Mm.
0: <laughs> it's 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 a scary time right now, I think. Um, I mean, one, the word happiness, what does it even mean, I think is, is one thing. And I think people are really... I mean, this has been an age-old question of what does happiness mean, but I think the problem right now is that it's used in incredibly vague and interchangeable ways to mean all kinds of things. Um, and I think um, when this then gets disseminated to the public, it becomes really tricky because people just have this word of happiness. Maybe it's something about a, a bigger sense of you know subjective well-being, or maybe it's just sensory pleasure in the moment. But they just know that that's something that they ought to have, right? And so, right, we see a host of prescription rates skyrocketing and you know you could hope that maybe it's just more accurate detection and diagnosis of depression in this day and age, but, but you have to wonder if it's more something else and being driven by this this zest to sort of minimize negative and, and, and maximize positive. Um, so, so it worries me in this day of happiness because I think what it also does is, um, and I think this is especially an American problem, is pushes us away from just simply experiencing negative emotions too that are incredibly rich sources of information for us and incredibly important components of what give us rich and meaningful lives. Um, I mean,
5: what's the science here?
0: Yeah, so in terms no, of... You the, have a lab,
5: but... Yeah. What does what, what, what an experiment consist of?
0: In studying emotion, what does it right. look like, just at a general level? Well, in yeah, a particular level. Yeah, so um, let me think of a good experiment in our lab. So one of the studies that we've done have been to try to look at emotional responses. Um, Lori will remember this task. Um, emotional responses that are self-referential. So what we do when we study emotion is we take a multi confidential approach. So we'll bring someone into the lab, and in one study we were trying to look at the experience of self-conscious emotions, and so we had people um, come into the lab. They sit in front of a computer screen, and what we're doing with them is, are three things. We're measuring them simultaneously. We're measuring their subjective or self-reported emotion. That's one piece of emotion. It may not be the truth, but it's but it's an important component. Two, we are videotaping participants and coding their expressive signatures of emotion in their face, um, coding them using many different standardized systems, facts, BAF, all these things that look at features of emotion. And then we look at their physiological signatures. Would
5: you like the tapes from today? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, we'll, we'll code them. Um,
0: and what we think is that, You can't say anything about emotion from any one single channel. Um, It's going to lead you down the wrong path. So in studies like this, we'll have people sing along to a karaoke task. Um, and then unbeknownst to them, they have to watch the video themselves. Poor Lori did this for me once. And, uh, it's, shown, it's shown in lots of Jude's talks, which is one of the reasons I was excited we didn't have PowerPoint. <laughs> 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 you were good, though. You didn't get embarrassed. Um, <laughs> but what we're doing here is we're really trying to quantify, like, when a person has an emotional response, which component is most centrally featured? Is it something about their subjective representation? Is it what they're signaling or communicating to others? Is it shifts in their body? You know, their heart rate, their skin conductance, their temperature, their breathing. Um, and then we also do some studies taking people into the scanner, too, and trying to understand neural mechanisms at that level. But I think when you study emotion, what you really need to do is at every single moment be looking at it simultaneously across multiple levels of analysis.
5: Your, your yeah. last comment, um, yeah. that we need to mm-hmm. bring this together with philosophy, Yeah, is coincidental with the publication of Leon Weasel here, Attack on science today, uh, uh-huh. saying that philosophy tells us about happiness, not science. Uh, what's, what so? What do you have to say about
1: that?
5: her? Her comment. Hi.
2: Yeah. I don't want to say anything about. Yeah, I No, care. about. Put uh, <laughs> final comment. Yeah. Um,
5: I mean, what is You mentioned philosophy? in
2: passing um, mm-hmm. uh, a study which showed that cheerful kids had a higher mortality uh, mm-hmm. risk of mortality. Mm-hmm and i thought no that's not that doesn't surprise me in a way because i remember when my children were young i remember talking to a wise older colleague and saying you know i'm really worried about our kids because they're having this sort of ideal upbringing it's a very nurturing house and they've got books and music and everything is perfect oh no and and i'm just afraid they're going to be soft as grapes and be completely vulnerable when they get out in the real world they won't have been tested at all uh, uh yeah. emotionally tested yeah. yeah. and uh, he had a very wise response he said don't worry they'll make their own trouble <laughs> uh, and he was right yeah. uh, but um, uh, and and recovered from it of course and learned a great deal from it But there is this yeah. question of whether we are making a big mistake yeah. in trying to sort of cocoon our children, Mm-hmm. in a world of positive emotions yeah. and shield them from uh, ever yeah. really experiencing fear or loneliness or boredom. And uh, I wonder, what you, what have you done, has there been research
0: on that? Yeah, I think abs- your intuition's absolutely right. And um, there's been some work on this. We've been doing some with a, a colleague of ours, Michael Norton, that many of you know, looking at this concept of emotional diversity. Um, And if you think about it just within a broader sense of ecosystems, diversity is is really important for, you know, health and survival of, of that particular system. And we've sort of taken this looking at sort of the inner sort of psychological system and sort of, what, what is most important for sort of well-being? And when we, we talked about well-being, we're talking about not only psychological functioning, but actually physical health functioning. So we have these large medical reports from people. And what we're finding is that it's the diversity of emotional experiences that both cross-sectionally and longitudinally are predicting some of our best outcomes. So you want like a mixture of things it's fine to have some sort of joy, but you also want sadness. You want the experience of guilt. You want the experience of, you know, loss. All of these things are really important in sort of keeping us, um, I would say, building sort of a, a psychological strength to know how to experience these emotions, to know how to cope with them, and to, I think, get information from from the world around you too. So I think in terms of you know how does this relate to raising children I think as much as you can expose them to different kinds of emotions and not let any one kind predominate I think that's what's going to be most critical is sort of the diversity of experiences at the affective level. I
2: have one more you know, question.
0: Yeah. Mm-hmm.
2: No, I was just going to ask yeah. uh, you know, what your thoughts are on the functional count kind of emotions that includes not only their internal function, but also their interpersonal function. And mm-hmm. the thing that's interesting to me about emotions yeah. is not what you feel inside, but the fact that mm-hmm. that I display the emotion, and that yeah. not only do you read it, mm-hmm. but you mm-hmm. copy it. That there's a kind of emotional contagion, which is a very fundamental feature, to my eye, of emotions. So you mm-hmm. people mm-hmm. are depressed, you become depressed. They're anxious or happy, and that's that was something I'm very curious about your thoughts on this this interpersonal account of emotions, not just the intrapersonal account.
0: Well, yeah, it's so interesting. So I I teach this course on emotion, and when I ask students to, you know, provide an example of a time they remember experiencing some, you know, memorable emotion, they always talk about it in social context. Um, Usually it's about people, but often it's with people. And um, many people would say that our emotions are inherently relational and interdependent, right? And that the function of our emotions is not to sort of, keep us as individuals navigating the world, but it's to connect us to other people and to sort of re- inter- relate to them in a yeah, so I would say, yeah. in
2: a way, yeah. your account—the use of information—I would say emotions yeah. might not be about the acquisition of information from the environment, but the delivery of information to the environment.
0: Mm-hmm, uh, mm-hmm. So I, yeah, would it can a signal of mental health of a variety yeah. of things. Yeah, I mean, there's been some fascinating studies looking at exactly what you're talking about, which is sort of this mimicry or contagion of emotion, and finding, um, for example, in married couples, that those who had the best sort of marital Self, you know, quality in terms of self-reporting satisfaction were those who played this dance. They had this mimicry, not only at the subjective level, looking at continuous rating dials of emotion as they were interacting with each other, but even looking at physiological signatures that have been thought to co-vary with the experience of positive emotion, they were in sync with one another, right? As one person's sort of level, looking at cardiac vagal tone shifted, so did the others. And so it seems to be what's most important in this case is not what emotions you're experiencing with the partner, but that you're in sync with one another and there's a sense of, of, of almost coherence between partners, not just within an individual. Yeah. Thank you. Yeah, thank you.